MacCast, Sunday, March 12th, 2023. This episode of the MacCast is brought to you by ZocDoc. More on them later in the show. Hey, Mac Geeks, it's time for your MacCast, the show for Mac Geeks by Mac Geeks. I'm Adam, and this is the show where we discuss all things Macintosh. How you doing? Welcome back to the MacCast. Glad to be back here with you for another episode of Mac News, Hints, Tips, all the goings-ons in the Apple and Mac community. How are you doing? I hope you are having a wonderful, great day, weekend, whatever it may be. Things are looking pretty good around here. Just looking over the show notes for this episode, we have a few things to dive into and to discuss. We're going to talk about uh, MacBook Airs and Apple processors, Apple Silicon. We're going to get into some issues with production and displays and LED technology. We're going to talk about the iPhone absolutely crushing it with their numbers, as well as talk about what's coming up next for the iPhone, we have the release of a long-awaited new service from Apple Services, and we're going to talk about HomePods a little bit, we're going to get into headset strategy, all that good stuff that we like to talk about uh, related to Apple and uh, what they have going on. And then I have some great tips and feedback for you. We're going to get into doing i have a question about restoring from online backups and also we're going to dive in and talk about cookies a little bit and uh, that will kind of round out this episode of the maccast so it should be a good show before we dive in i do want to take a quick moment and thank a show sponsor and that is collide and i have some big news from them if you're an octa user they can get your entire fleet up to 100% compliance. How? Well, if a device isn't compliant, the user can't log into your cloud apps until they've fixed the problem. It's that simple. Clyde patches one of the major holes in zero-trust architecture, and that is device compliance. Without Clyde, IT struggles to solve basic problems like keeping everyone's OS and browser up to date. Unsecured devices are logging into your company's apps because there's nothing there to stop them. Collide is the only device trust solution that enforces compliance as part of authentication, and it's built to work seamlessly with Okta. The moment Collide's agents detect a problem, it alerts the user and gives them instructions to fix it. If they don't fix the problem within a set time, they're blocked. Collide's method means fewer support tickets, less frustration, and most importantly, 100% fleet compliance. Visit collide.com slash maccast to learn more or to book a demo. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash maccast, collide.com slash maccast, and a big thank you to Collide for their support of the show. We've been talking about the possibility of some new MacBook Airs for a little while now. There's lots of speculation still on when we're actually going to see those new models. Ross Young this week thinks that it could actually happen soon. He tweeted again that he suspects a 15-inch MacBook Air would be coming, and he put the timeline as April. 
9to5Mac says that they've been hearing from multiple sources that Apple is indeed working on two new updated MacBook Airs, an updated 13-inch model and a 15-inch model. And even Bloomberg has come out to say that a release is imminent. Uh, A lot of people, myself included, though, feel like the timeline might be more around Worldwide Developer Conference. That seems the best timing. That's when they did the updates last year to the 13-inch model. And the big question then becomes, what kind of processor are we going to see in the MacBook Air. There seems to be some back and forth debate. Bloomberg claims that at least one model of the new MacBook Air would potentially have an updated Apple M3 processor. I don't know if that would just be the 15-inch model, Uh, though in the past, Ming-Chi Kuo has been quoted as saying that the new MacBook Airs would have an M2. So what do you think? M2, M3, I'm thinking the M3s are going to be held off a little while longer. That's just my speculation, although Apple could sneak one in there. Worldwide Developer Conference would be a great place to do that. There are also rumors, and we've talked about these a bit as well, that updated 24-inch iMacs are on the way, and that's where Apple would add the M3 processor. Those are expected maybe in the back half of this year or early next year. The news on that, and I think we might have talked about this last time, is that it's probably just going to be a processor update. No new size, no 27-inch iMac coming, still 24s, and Apple may even still maintain the existing colors. So it wouldn't be a very exciting update beyond the new M3 processor, but that's kind of what's in the works right now for new Macs on the horizon, at least what we're hearing from the rumor mill. Are you excited about any of these new models? I think a 15-inch MacBook Air would be incredible. I don't know if that potentially muddies up the MacBook Pro lineup with the 14-inch and the 16-inch models. Be curious to know what you think. Shoot me an email or an audio comment, maccast at gmail.com. I think we've been talking for a little while about Apple's desire to potentially migrate their displays to micro LED technology. I think this has really been going on since probably around 2017. They kind of did some acquisitions. We know they've been doing a lot of R&D into that technology over the years, and there have been multiple rumors that have pointed to Apple wanting to eventually develop their own display designs using the micro LED technology that would allow them to have brighter displays, better contrast, lower power, all the things that Apple wants, thinner displays, thinner devices, all things that Apple really, really wants to go after. Thing is, is that micro LED technology, while it has better durability, efficiency, brightness, dynamic range, viewing angles, all of those things compared to existing technologies like OLED, It's been a bit of a struggle for Apple to get the technology to a place where they could actually use it. And this is being backed up by a new report this week from the information and also the elect. They say that, you know, getting the cost of manufacturing down has been a particularly large struggle and also getting good yields out of the technology where It can actually meet Apple's large demand needs, just haven't really worked out. And so for the foreseeable future, Apple is going to have to continue to rely on Samsung for OLED, at least for a while longer. So we're not really getting, it sounds like, much closer, at least for larger devices to have 
micro LED displays. Ideally, Apple does want to get micro LED technology into, say, the iPhone or iPads, probably monitors and, and displays for uh, their notebooks and MacBooks, MacBook Pros and things, um, but they might have to wait. If anything, it looks like right now they might be able to squeeze the technology into a future Apple Watch. Reports are kind of pointing to maybe this year, potentially, or next year. We'll have to wait and see on that. But regardless, micro-LED technology looks like it's a little ways off. Now, speaking of displays, this year's iPad Pros we're hearing, Apple could make the move to OLED panels for those, but... It could come at a very large cost. This is according to a report, again, from the ELEC. They say that current estimates have prices starting at, if Apple puts an OLED panel into an iPad Pro, starting at US $1,500 for the 11-inch iPad Pro and $1,800 for the 13-inch models. If you're paying attention, that's an 80% increase in the 11-inch iPad Pro price and a 60% increase in the 13-inch, making these very, very expensive. Now, I'm taking this rumor with a grain of salt. I'm not sure Apple could get away with bumping the base price of those models that much just because they're sticking an OLED panel in there. I think it could be a little bit crazy. I mean, we're getting into pricing for iPads that is matching or exceeding the cost of, say, a MacBook Air entry-level or an entry-level MacBook Pro. And that is a little bit insane, or at least I think so. I mean, I don't know. Would you be willing to pay a lot more just for an OLED display on an iPad? I think the current generation of, of LED technology and mini LED technology is pretty darn good. And I'm not sure that someone's clamoring that much for an OLED display on their iPad. But I've been proven wrong in the past and Apple's been able to pull these things off. So let me know what you think. Shoot me an email. Send me an audio comment. Maccast at gmail.com. One area last year where it looks like Apple completely crushed the competition was in global smartphone sales. This is according to the latest numbers from CounterPoint Research's Global Monthly Handset Sales Tracker. They have the numbers for all of 2022 for smartphone sales globally, and Apple secured eight out of the top 10 spots on that list. Yeah, 80% of the devices last year in the top 10 were iPhones. And it might surprise you which one was on the top of the list. It was actually the iPhone 13, not the iPhone 13 Pro. It was tops of iPhones for 2022, according to the report, accounting for 28% of all iPhones, iPhones sold last year. It actually held that top spot from January until September when the new iPhone 14 models came out. And it was at that point that the iPhone 14 Pro Max overtook it. Um, the iPhone 13 Pro Max and 14 Pro Max models captured the number two and three spots on the list, respectively. And uh, yeah, so a lot of people really like that iPhone model. It 
top selling in 2022, I imagine the iPhone 14 ultimately will outsell the iPhone 14 Max models also for 2023. I think what we see often is right when Apple does the release, early adopters, you know, the folks like myself jump in on the Pro models really early. Often the Pro Max model starts to become the the top seller, but then over the course of the entire year, you have more of your average consumer or general general consumer, and they're probably more opting for something like the iPhone 14 or iPhone 14 um Plus, and so Apple did do a refresh this year to their iPhone 14 and iPhone 14 Plus models, just like we thought with a brand new color for spring. So the yellow version is out. And this is one of the ways that Apple continues that sales cycle for that model, right? They refresh it get a new color and it entices consumers who might've been on the fence or waiting to get a new phone. They're excited about the new color. They get some new marketing buzz and uh, everything kind of continues. So that did happen. A more interesting thing, I think in the press release for that new yellow iPhone model is Apple also dropped that the emergency SOS satellite feature is going to be rolling out to more countries. They're going to roll it out in Austria, Belgium, Italy, Luxembourg, and the Netherlands, along with Portugal later this month. And then continuing to focus on sales, Bloomberg had a report this week that Apple is planning to revamp their international sales strategy to focus more on India. Samsung phones tend to dominate there, but Apple's products are reportedly gaining in popularity in India, and Apple plans to take advantage of that. The report says that Apple will make India have its uh, India become its own sales region, and they will put better focus and efforts on sales growth in that region. We also know they've been expanding manufacturing into that region. I don't know if all that's playing in together, maybe in some of the buzz that's going on in India. I'd be curious to know from our uh, listeners in India, you know, what is the general sort of vibe around Apple products and iPhones and that versus uh, their competitors. Shoot us an email, send us an audio comment, maccast at gmail.com. We also continue to get reports that Apple's focus this year for the iPhone really is going to be on new features for the iPhone 15 Pro and Pro Max models. Apple continuing to build exclusives into that. This week we have Barclays analysts Blaine Curtis and Tom O'Malley reaffirming the rumor that we heard earlier this week that the iPhone 15 Pro models will feature a new improved LiDAR sensor supplied by Sony that's supposed to offer up more power efficiency with the same sort of functionality. So better battery life there. Then we have a Korean blog, Naver, claiming that while all this year's models will have the dynamic island, that's a rumor we heard, I think, in the past. We talked about probably last episode. Uh, They're saying that only the Pro models are going to come with ProMotion displays and uh, always-on displays, something that is featured in the iPhone 14 Pro models this year. So that functionality is going to continue to be a Pro exclusive. And, uh, you know, so I think Apple really trying to push sales of those iPhone Pro models to 
early adopters, the fanboys, people like myself again, who are going to jump in and want to go for all those great new pro features. But thinking that, uh, you know, for the rest of consumers, they don't have to quite do so many enhancements. And that probably helps ultimately, or I think definitely helps ultimately with uh, the profit margins in the bottom line as they bring out new models. So we got that going on. Another thing we've been hearing a lot about this year is sort of a redesign of the volume buttons. This week, this week we did see some reportedly leaked chassis images. They showed off a midnight matte black finish. So probably for the iPhone 15 or 15 plus models. And on the side, it did show a single kind of cutout for a rocker style volume button. I think this was the non-pro models because it was actually a physical button and another feature that's exclusively reported to be maybe on the iPhone 15 Pro models this year is going to be those solid state buttons that we talked about. So Apple adding additional taptic engines for the button controls and uh, doing that on the Pro models exclusively as well. And then for future iPhone models, we've been talking for a while about Face ID under display technology, Apple eventually wanting to get rid of any kind of cutouts or holes uh, doing away with maybe the dynamic island at that point. And we heard that Face ID technology is getting closer. But this week, analyst Ross Young said that Apple, while they were hoping to have something ready by 2024, has likely had to push back the timeline until 2025 due to what he is calling sensor issues. Uh, they've been struggling with that technology a little bit. It's been back and forth in the rumor mills. So We'll have to wait and see where they land on the timeline. You may remember, I think, last week that we said the site, the elect, said that Apple would have the feature ready and available in the iPhone 16 in the iPhone 16 Pro models, which would be expected in 2024. So it could come a little bit later than that. Analyst Ross Young has been pretty reliable in terms of his uh, his predictions. So again. We'll have to wait a few years to find out, but uh, that's kind of the latest on what's happening with iPhones. We finally, finally have a release date for Apple's dedicated classic music service. You may remember way, way, way back when they told us that they would have a dedicated music service for classical music on Apple Music. This was way back in 2021. They had acquired a classical music streaming service called Prime Phonic. We kept waiting. 2021 went by. 2022 did not see any kind of release. Here we are, 2023. And now Apple has announced the new Apple Music Classic app. It's available on the App Store right now as a pre-order and will be available for download on March 28th. The good news is while it's pre-order, it's really just kind of meaning, uh, I think, pre-release because if you have an Apple Music or an Apple One subscription, the service is included for free with your existing music subscription. So you don't need to pay anymore. You don't need to do any kind of update or anything like that other than grabbing the new app. The service is going to offer 5 million classical music tracks, including new high-quality releases, hundreds of curated playlists, thousands of exclusive albums, and other features like composer bios and deep dives into key works, according to Apple. Uh, it's also going to have a better search, more focused on classical music with the ability to search by composer, 
by work, by conductor, by the catalog number, and a lot, lot more. So if you are a classical music fan, this should be a nice enhancement for you. It wasn't clear to me from the announcement if Apple is going to keep classical music in the core music app or simply move everything over to this new dedicated app. I think the latter would probably be the better strategy to just break it out, separate it, and then just link over to the classical music app from the main music app. They are heavily promoting the new music, uh, Apple Music Classical app in the classical genre section of the main music app right now. So you can go there to find the links, or you can just simply head over to the app store and get signed up for the new classical music app. So uh, classical music fans out there, yep, it's coming March 28th. We've heard rumors for a while now about a update to the HomePod, this sort of mythical HomePod that is going to mash up or merge an iPad, an Apple TV, a HomePod, kind of become a home hub for all of your entertainment, for HomeKit and all your devices and accessories. It sounds like an interesting product, but we haven't seen it quite yet. This week, Ming-Chi Kuo came out and says and said that Apple will announce a new HomePod with a built-in 7-inch display sometime in early 2024, although Kuo's version of the rumor sounds a little bit less ambitious than this sort of mashed-up, you know, Home Central, HomePod, Apple TV, iPad sort of thing. Um, but it would let Apple have a product that offers, according to quote, quote, tighter integration with Apple's other hardware products, making a significant shift in the company's smart home strategy. So this would be, I guess, probably more focused on the HomeKit smart home hub kind of uh, integrations. I would imagine it would have tight integration with your contacts and, and uh, calendars and, and email and all that stuff. So maybe it would be a great kind of kitchen device or a central home device in addition to being able to control all of your home kit. I would imagine it would likely also be able to do FaceTime, you would hope. Um, but if uh, you were looking for a HomePod with a screen, sounding like that might be coming sometime in 2024. And then one last little bit of interesting news. I don't know how this bodes for Apple's AR VR headset and their strategy, but according to the Financial Times this week, Apple's design team did not want this sort of uh, dual release strategy for Apple's AR VR technology. You know, we've been talking a lot. It's expected that Worldwide Developer Conference might be when Apple announces their new AR VR headset, that really expensive thing that's going to have not much battery life, maybe this bulky battery pack. It just sounds really clunky. And I think that's the ultimate reason why we're hearing in this Financial Times report that, you know, Apple's design team was not too keen on Apple moving forward with this. They really wanted Apple to wait until they could develop a truly lightweight set of AR glasses that all that technology would come together, be really achievable, probably have great battery life, really lightweight, all those things. And then we started hearing, right, the strategy that Apple is going to have the kind of more traditional AR, VR, goggles type headset coming out. And then eventually we'll get to the glasses type thing. And um, 
what we're hearing in this report is that since the dream of a true lightweight AR glasses was so far off, Apple's CEO, Tim Cook, and Chief Operating Officer, Jeff Williams, decided to go forward with a launching this AR VR mixed headset earlier, probably this year, and then getting to that other technology sometimes later, sometime later. In the report, they cite some former Apple engineers who've claimed in that internally Apple has put huge pressure on the team to ship a product uh, soon. And uh, in my mind, that could be a pretty risky move. I guess some people might look at it at being bold, but it's not boding well, right? For everything we've been hearing about this AR VR headset recently, I see a report like this and I start to worry even more. I was already a little bit worried when we started hearing about this battery pack thing, but uh, starting to feel like this thing might launch and not be ready for prime time. It's going to be very, very expensive. It could ultimately uh, not make an impression in the tech community. And I think that kind of thing can hurt Apple's reputation and uh, the prospects for future products, right? Like we could lose faith a little bit in Apple's ability to pull something off. And a lot of the reports are saying this thing is supposed to be Tim Cook's, Tim Cook's quote unquote legacy because it really would be the first kind of major project that is a brand new set of technology that would be launched under Tim Cook's watch. I know we have things like the Apple Watch and a few other items, but this would be the really, really big one, right? The big dynamic shift. And I think rushing something like this to market before it's really ready, before it's fully thought out, before it really is that sort of impressive prod product, yeah, it's a, it's a bold, risky move. And we'll have to be able to see if Apple can pull it off. I mean, I'm excited to see what they're doing with the AR VR tech, tech, but, you know, it really needs to be, I think, a home run. It can't be something that they sort of, you know, tweak and roll into. It needs to be on that same level as an original iPhone or an original iPod, at least in my mind. And, uh, you know, I guess only time will tell, but, you know, interesting to hear this, not too surprising based on all the reports and rumors we've been hearing for years. And uh, we'll see what Apple can pull off. But with that, that is going to do it for the news for this week. Before we move on, I do want to take a quick moment and thank another one of our show sponsors. And that is ZocDoc. You know, there's nothing worse than going to a doctor's appointment, expecting to be the center of attention. And then your doctor seems to have better things to do and better places to be. Instead of listening to you intently, asking you how you feel and helping you along, the doctor is checking the clock. On ZocDoc, you can find quality doctors who focus on you, listen to you, and prioritize your care. ZocDoc is the only free app that lets you find and book doctors who are patient-reviewed, take your insurance, and are available when you need them, and treat almost every condition under the sun. No more Dr. Roulette or scouring the internet for questionable reviews. With ZocDoc, you have a trusted guide to connect you to your favorite doctor who you haven't met yet. Millions of people use ZocDoc's free app to find and book a doctor in their neighborhood who is patient-reviewed and fits their needs and their schedule just right. Go to ZocDoc.com slash MacCast to download the app for free 
Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. Many available within 24 hours. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash MacCast. ZocDoc dot com slash MacCast. And a big thank you to ZocDoc for their support of the show. I think it's no secret, especially if you've been listening to the MacCast for a while, that I am a backup fanatic. I have multiple forms of backup on all of my Macs. Local backup, time machine backup, archive backup, online backup. Yep, I have been bit in the past a long, long time ago. Seems like a lifetime ago, and I learned my lesson. And so I've been preaching about uh, backup, and it sounds like a lot of you are listening. As a matter of fact, I got this feedback this week and question from Bryce, who unfortunately you know, had an issue but had backup. But here is uh, here's Bryce's question, and let's see if we can help him out. Hi, Adam. Longtime listener to the MacCast, multi-decades. I have a problem with uh, my Backblaze. I've been subscribing per your backup suggestion and uh, had a hard drive failure on a Fusion drive on an iMac uh, recently and had it replaced. It was backed up on Backblaze. When I downloaded the restore from Backblaze, it gives me a file container called Mac HD, which is the standard uh, um, ID, and then it gives you the names of the users. How do I re-implement these files easily back into the Macintosh so that I can access all the data? It appears like I have to start digging through datas and libraries and caches to try to find the data, and there must be an easier way. I'm just putting it out to you or to the Mac community to find out if there is a better way to restore from Backblaze uh, after receiving the data from Backblaze. That's it. Love your show. It's awesome. And Backblaze is a superb product. Uh, glad you have turned me on to it. Just want to make sure that I do it right the first time. Thanks, Adam. Hey, Bryce. Yeah, I think what we need to talk about is sort of backup strategies a little bit more. I, I think you likely already know this. It sounds like from your uh, from your voicemail there that you do. But I tend to view online backup like Backblaze as more or less the last resort. It's it's my catastrophic backup. It's used in the worst case scenarios where everything else fails, all other forms of backup or, you know, heaven forbid that something happens to my computer. It meets a catastrophic fate uh, in some sort of natural disaster or just gets dropped and destroyed or whatever, right? If online backup is that place where it's safe, it's off-site, uh, and uh, we can go grab that sort of stuff. And Backblaze is great for that. Um, you can log into Backblaze. You can get individual files. They have versions going back years you can download a zip for recovery of, of a single file of folders multiple files um, if you have a really really bad situation they can send you a usb drive with larger amounts of data and backup and so it is good for catastrophic recovery but as you're noting it ultimately when you download it especially just as a zip it's just a bunch of files so you can say go in and tell it hey give me my home folder 
but it's just going to be the home folder and the structure. And even within that, I think there's certain system files and hidden files and a lot of things that just they don't uh, back up because those can be recovered or restored with a reinstall of your operating system or something like that. So really the idea behind the Backblaze backup is that it's a place where you can go, you can get those files, and you can basically copy them back over. You can restore them, but a lot of the restoration process is going to be more manual. It's not like a cloned backup or say a time machine backup that you can use with Apple's recovery assistant, right? Time machine is great because if something goes wrong, I can reinstall my operating system. I can use uh, the recovery assistant, the automated process and sort of get everything back the way it was similar with like a cloned backup or something like that. You can, you can ultimately restore from that. So I imagine in your case, the best process to use since this was a total hard drive failure and you replace the hard drive would be to restore the operating system to like new with the replaced hard drive, reinstall all of your applications and those sorts of things, create a user account with the same username and ultimately the same home folder name. And then that will have kind of all the default stuff with nothing in it. And then you can slowly start to copy things back back from your backblaze backup your back backblaze user folder and put things back into say documents and desktops move the pictures back muse move the music folder back downloads and you can basically overwrite all of those things now the tricky part probably comes into play when you start to look at your library folder you could try replacing the entire contents of that sometimes you can run into permission problems with certain things so you know you might give that a try but you might also want to be a little bit more selective so within your home library folder, there's things like the application support folder. That's going to have all kinds of different applications. And actually, in some ways, you could maybe look at this as like an opportunity to do a little bit of house cleaning. Because what you might find in your Backblaze backup home folder is a lot of files and especially support files for applications and things that you're not using anymore, or maybe you deleted a long time ago, but didn't actually, you know, do a full cleanup. You just deleted the app from the applications folder and it left behind a lot of cruft. So you could look at things like your application support folder, uh, your uh, preferences folder, and you might find old application stuff in there that maybe you don't even want to bring back. Other folders within the library that you probably want to look at recovering would be things like the calendar folder, which is going to be all of your, you know, calendars, your contacts folder, um, maybe fonts. If you have certain custom fonts that you've installed over the years, you have the messages folder. Big important one often is the mail folder, right? That's going to have your mail library if you use Apple's mail application. Maybe the Safari folder, which could have bookmarks and all that sort of stuff. If you use shortcuts or automation, there's going to be those sorts of things. And then any kind of specialized apps, there might be individual app folders and settings and things like that you, you do want to restore. But certainly recovery from something like Backblaze is a little bit more of a manual process, not quite as automated. I am not personally aware of any automated tools that can make that a little bit easier. But we do have the MacCast community. You out there might have gone through this yourself and have some tips and tricks for doing a recovery from an online backup uh, that you might want to share. So if you do, send those along, maccast at gmail.com. 
But ultimately, I still strongly recommend a multi-tiered backup and recovery strategy. And just to reiterate, I know we've covered this on the show a lot in the past, but to reiterate my strategy, Time Machine in my line is your first line of defense. If you don't have any other kind of backup at all, Time Machine should be one that you have because it's simple and easy to set up. You get an external hard drive. I usually recommend up to two or at least two times the size of your internal drive. So if you have a 500 gigabyte internal, you want a one terabyte external to be your time machine backup. Larger is better because that just means you're going to be able to back up more, more files, have more history. You'll have a little bit more room. Um, these days, I would say if you could afford it, go with an SSD. They've come way down in price. I think you can get them pretty affordably. I like to use, uh, bus powered or usb powered drives just because it's less cables that's a little easier to kind of connect things up but any hard drive will do and the 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 key here is get an external hard drive i don't care what kind and set it up for time machine if you're not doing any other backup you will thank me someday uh it will save you at some point and you'll be glad you had it outside of that you might also want to do a clone backup as a secondary local backup um, and then add in off-site backup like Backblaze as that sort of last step catastrophic backup sort of thing. You know, most people feel you need three forms of backup to be truly backed up. And I subscribe personally to that philosophy. But any backup is better than no backup. That's the, the one thing I want to really, really stress. And then on top of all of that, I also have archive backup, additional backup of local files. This is stuff that I, it's more like my long-term storage. And I use local, I use either local drives or network attached storage devices like a Drobo or Synology for that. I would recommend Synology at this point. Drobo's had some financial struggles recently. I still use my Drobo, but uh, you know I'm considering replacing it sometime here soon. So just be aware of that. And that's a nice way to have uh, archival backup and make sure that you have offsite backup for your archived backups as well, just in case you have that catastrophic failure. So all those good things you know, do your backup. And uh, I hope that kind of answers your question there, Bryce, and helps you out a little bit. All right. Another thing that I got an email about this week was Terry, and he wanted to talk about clearing cookies in Safari. You know, your browser cookies, those things store a lot of things, uh, local website data, like remembering your logins to certain websites, uh, settings and preferences and, and things like that, as well as could have tracking data, maybe the, the bad side of cookies that you don't want hanging around. But I think Terry has a common thing that came up for him that a lot of us do. Uh, you know, oftentimes when you have trouble with a website or, or browsing the web, a recommendation is, hey, clear your cache, clear your cookies, you know, reset your browser, basically. But oftentimes you'll have websites like maybe a banking website or websites that you often visit where it's like, I want that data to hang around. I don't want to like delete that data. I don't want to get rid of it. So Terry, and this is something I do as well, selectively clears or deletes his cookies. This is good for both security and not being tracked and just general housekeeping and stuff like that. But selectively deleting your cookies. So going in and deleting specific cookies versus just going into the Safari menu and say, clear clear browsing data, right? 
is a little bit more work. So it can be a little bit more tedious. Um, with Safari on the Mac, what you do is you go into the Safari settings, you go to the privacy tab, and you can click on the manage website data button. And when you do that, it'll take a second, but it'll give you a list of all of the websites that are storing local data on your machine, including like cookies and cache and all that sort of stuff. And then you can go through that list and you can, I think it's the easiest way to do it is to select all of them and then hold down the option key and then select the sites that you want to keep, basically the cookies and data that you want to keep. And then you can click the remove button to remove all of the rest of the cookies and data. Uh, you could also just simply go one by one and delete any cookies or data that you don't want around anymore that you want to get rid of. Um, but again, that's pretty tedious. And so Terry asked what I think is a great question is, are there tips and tricks for actually doing the opposite? Sort of saying, hey, when I click that, hey, delete all of my cookie data, my cache data and stuff like that. Can I sort of protect or say, except for this website, this website, and this website, like keep my banking data, keep my one password cookies, keep my, you know, whatever sites that you want to preserve. Is there a way to do that? And then sort of just remove everything else. And I was not personally aware of any way to do this or anything that could do this. So like a lot of us, what I did was I immediately went on a Google hunt and I actually found an app appropriately called Cookie. Now, I've never personally used this app. Uh, I don't know much about it, but I'll have a link to it in the show notes at maccast.com. Uh, it is a paid for app. It's $24.99 US. It's available on the app store. So that's a good sign because you know it's been vetted uh, through Apple's review process. Um, and what it allows you to do is exactly what Terry is looking for. Well, that and a lot, lot more. So you can sort of set up your favorite websites and tell it, hey, I want to preserve those cookies. What's cool about this app is it works with all of the browsers that on, are on your system. It works with multiple browsers. You can set up rules that are browser-specific or global, and then you can automate when and how cookies are removed and deleted, how all that local data is sort of managed. There is a free trial of the app. So I downloaded that. I played around with it. I tested it out. It's got a nice clean interface. It seems to work as advertised. Like I said, I haven't used it yet, um, but it looks like a good option. So I found that for you, Terry. Another option is uh, in Safari. If you want to get even more advanced with your cookies and be even more targeted and more specific, you can enable Safari's developer tools, and that will allow you to not only go in while you're on a site and inspect and look at the individual cookies that they're setting and in some cases see what kind of data is stored in there, um, but you can even delete individual cookies within a site. So maybe you want to go in and keep your shopping cart on a certain website, but you want to remove some of the tracking cookies. You would be able to do that. So if you want to play around with that, uh, you could open up your Safari settings, go under the advanced tab, and then you'll want to check and turn on the show developer menu and menu bar option. And when you do that, you'll get a new menu bar uh, item in the menu bar called develop. And so when you're on a website, you can go under the develop menu and you can choose the show web inspector option. And then you'll want to click on the storage tab. There's a bunch of tabs in there, but click on the storage tab and then 
over on the left, you'll see a section for cookies. You can open that up. You can select the website URL uh, for the site that you're currently on. And then in the main panel, it will list out and show all of the cookies and the data. And then you can go through there. You can select any individual cookie, hit delete on your keyboard, and that will delete just that one cookie. There's also a little trash can icon in the menu there up on top, and that will flush out all of the cookies for that website. So you can go review the cookies first and then actually delete them using the developer menu versus going through them, the main privacy settings. So just another way you can kind of delete and manage cookies. But what this cookie app application looks like, what you are probably looking for. Um, I'm sure other members of the community may have more experience or other options or tools or tips or tricks. If you have some of those, let us know about other apps. If you have used this cookie app and like it and want to give us a review, that would be awesome as well. Send your emails and audio comments to maccast at gmail.com. But with that, that is going to do it for the show for this week. Uh, big thank you to my show supporters. Bandwidth for the MacCast is provided by Cashfly. You can find them at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com. And all advertising on the MacCast is handled by Backbeat Media. They are at BackbeatMedia.com. As always, I love hearing from you. If you have a comment, a question, something you'd like to hear covered on a future episode of the MacCast, you can send your emails and audio comments to MacCast at gmail.com. You're also welcome to call in on the listener hotline. Uh, phone number is 281-622-4269, 281-MAC-IAM9. If you need show notes, links to anything that I talked about on this or any other episode of the MacCast, you'll find those on the website. That's at maccast.com. And uh, if you want to find me on social media, you can uh, follow me on Twitter, twitter.com slash maccast. You can check out the MacCast Facebook page over at facebook.com slash the maccast or find me on uh, Instagram, just maccast on Instagram. But with that, that is going to do it for now. Until next time, I will talk to you all again real soon. <laughs>